Welcome to Talking Sock. Travelling to America as an Aussie alien with extraordinary ability, Danny Miller is the face of King Kong. The biggest marionette that you could ever, the most technological marionette that you'd ever seen. Performing Kong in Melbourne and on Broadway, Danny's journey in puppetry has been a wild ride. It was just a whirlwind trip and I just got back from there full of enthusiasm. Join Danny and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. My name is Pete Davidson, and I'm joined today in the Rosebud Studio on the Mornington Peninsula, outside of Melbourne, by King Kong rig specialist, puppeteer, and marionette builder, Danny Miller. Hi, Danny. How are you? Thank you for being here, and thank you for having me. I'm great. Thank you, Pete, and thank you for having me. Danny? Yes? Why puppets? Look, there's so many reasons why puppets, I think. Well, first of all... There's no extent to the imagination when, when you're putting on a theatre piece, there's nothing that you can't really do with puppets. You know, puppets can fly, puppets can die. Pretty much what, what you can't do with an actor, you can do with puppets. So that's also great. But I think for me personally, especially for puppet building, there's a never-ending learning curve. So you are always learning, you're also always upskilling, you're all, always finding inspiration with other puppeteers. And when you're collaborating, you're just constantly learning. It's something that I love to do myself, always upskilling. And I just have to know so many different things uh, from sewing to using machinery. So wood, anything to do with wood, so saws and all these sorts of things. So it's something that I like just purely for upskilling is great. It's interesting that you call yourself a lifelong learner and a lot of puppeteers do. I am, however, aware that you are the only person in the world who can do a particular job and that job is the rigging of the face of King Kong. You're the only person in the world who knows how to use that control and operate those 16 motors on King Kong's face. So at what point do you accept a level of mastery even though you're a lifelong learner? I am someone, obviously I am the main face controller of King Kong but we also have swings and so through this whole process of King Kong from the Melbourne season and in the the Broadway season, I do have swings, and so that they do know how to do the job. But I've just been the constant, the constant throughout the process, I guess. But yeah, I mean, as far as mastery goes, that very specific job, uh, that's that's something that I could have job security in. If King Kong, either on Broadway or live, wherever it is, if it's going and they want somebody for the job, uh, I can definitely do that job, like no questions asked. Tell us about your first forays into puppetry because like me it's definitely doesn't sound like it's been a straightforward journey for you i don't know anyone who's actually had a straightforward journey into puppetry but i think the earliest memory of puppetry i can remember is my mum and my grandfather were so my my grandfather was a woodworker and my mum was just into all sorts of crafts and things so she's she was a bit of an artist and so uh, for a, a local sort of street fair. They used to make these wooden marionettes, uh, clown marionettes. You can actually see it right behind you. That's, that's good for the podcast. But Okay, so we need to describe it for our listeners. So we've got George Costanza, but next to George Costanza, we have... We have a clown puppet. So they used to make these clown puppets. My pop would make the actual... He would shape all the pieces for the puppets. And um, so that would be the base of the puppet. And my mum would dress them and paint them and you know they've got these little pom-poms for hair so they were yeah a very I guess very rudimentary sort of puppetry I've strung it up I've strung it up very nicely 
as a puppet's meant to be strung up, but they were very, you know, very, uh, there was fishing line for strings and things like that, but they were very cute and they were really good for the, the craft store that they had for a little while. That would be my very first instance of anything puppetry, but my first puppet show that I went and saw was Almost a Dinosaur. My grandma took me to see that and uh, my sister and myself. And that was actually put on by Polyglot Theatre wow. back in the, uh, I think, either late 80s or early 90s. I'm not sure. I know Philip Miller would be able to tell me that because he was actually one of the builders and I think performers in that show. But he definitely was, yeah, a builder of the the first very puppet that I ever saw performing. Hmm. And so we've got this journey of jumping into different courses, but then we found a way to professional puppetry quite quickly. So tell us about how we jumped first into King Kong. Okay, so there was a little road um, to get to King Kong to begin with. With puppetry, I, I had an interest in it and it was very much a hobby to begin with. So I started off in, I, I converted my garage in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I just converted it into a bit of a workshop. And so I started making marionettes myself I didn't have the right materials or tools or anything. So the first marionette I ever made was, it was a balsa wood marionette. And the balsa wood is awful for pups because it's so light. Um, but what I did was I fashioned the balsa wood around a glass Coke bottle. So that gave it the weight that I needed to do, um, to have. And, but the face was balsa wood, so it was very much carved. It's still got a lot of character, but it was um, very, you know, you can see when, if you see it, like it's, it's a very beginnings of anything sort of puppetry um, or puppet-like. So yeah, that was my, my first attempt was yeah, in my own garage. And then from there, I said, this is kind of great. And then the first show that I saw that really, really inspired me was Ronnie Burkett's Billy Twinkle in Melbourne at the Melbourne Arts Centre. It was just a phenomenal show and fortunately enough, uh, my girlfriend and I, my girlfriend at the time and I were the only ones that stayed after the show to say, you know, congratulations, we love the show. And of course I wanted to say, I love marionettes. I've just started building them or whatever. So not really expecting anything. Um, he was quite sick at the time. So he was still so kind to bring us backstage to say, you know, if, if you've got time, do you want to come backstage? And of course, like there's, that's a no-brainer. Mm. Yes, I've got time. And so he took us backstage, showed us all his beautiful marionette, beautiful, beautiful marionettes, was lifting up pieces of clothing, like these are the joints that I use. And I didn't take a whole lot of it in because I was just sort of gobsmacked at his generosity and just, you know, the, the, the grand scale that his puppet shows are and just for him to be such a kind, just a, a generous and loving man. As soon as you meet him, like you just know that he's... He's the real deal. Yeah. But so, yeah, we got talking and we exchanged emails. He would send me sort of paper mache recipes and all these sorts of things. And then one day he just said, if you ever get a chance, there's this conference in Connecticut called the, the Eugene O'Neill Puppetry Conference. And so that was just on my radar for quite a while. And for the next maybe year and a half, I sort of saved money just doing my orderly job that I was doing at a hospital but just knowing in the back of my head, like, this is something that I, I really want to do for myself. So I saved the money and then I went, yeah, in 2012, went to the Puppetry Conference in Connecticut, met all these amazing people, did Jim Cooper's mechanics, mechs class, uh, the pre-conference, and then Philip Huber's 
nine day you know, main conference with marionettes. And that was, that was the very beginning of like a wonderful, like a wonderful introduction to this, this industry, I guess. And just the people I met at the conference were, you know, obviously Pam Arcerio, who has been on Sesame Street as Grangetta from the very beginning. And I know Marty Robinson and, you know, also Philip Huber and Ronnie Burkett was actually, it was his first year that year. So I got to spend some time with him and, uh, Jean Marie Kevens, who is a big, big in the puppets, um, in the puppet scene over there too. Uh, but just the generosity and uh, obviously I was a little bit of an outsider cause I was the only international participant uh, that year. And so I, I think I got a lot of, not special treatment, but you know, there was definitely, there's this Australian and he's, you know, something different, but he's, got this passion and he love he loves you know the art form so I did get a lot of special treatment and uh even the weeks that followed the conference I was able to stay in Greenwich Village in you know, Jean Marie's apartment which was wow. uh, so generous of her but I was just among I got to see so many great things I went to Queens to see the Henson workshop with Jim Jim Cripples working at the time I got to spend a few hours there he was finishing off some coca-cola polar bears and so got to actually be there with him and see some just like the insides and mechanisms that he's obviously the master at but it was just a whirlwind trip and I just got that back from there full of enthusiasm and not knowing where to start but you know all the people at the at the conference were just so generous and just knew that they said oh you must know this person you must know this person so Everyone was saying, you must know Lana Schwartz because she had recently been to the conference from Australia. And so they obviously assumed that because I like puppets and I'm in Australia that I know everyone that has anything to do with puppets in Australia. <laughs> I knew absolutely nobody. Mm. So I was starting afresh. And so as soon as I got back to Melbourne, looked up Lana Schwartz. She said, oh, I don't really have everything going on at the moment, but you should contact Philip Miller. And that's the big ticket right there. Philip Miller is... The guy. He's the guy. And, you know, if you're starting off in puppetry and you meet Philip Miller, he, again, just the generosity of this man and just enthusiasm. Like he, he could see that I just had come back from the conference and was about to do uh, a fringe festival show called Puppet Palava. It was like a cabaret sort of performance. So I had one marionette, a uh, little, little marionette piece that I'd done at the conference and then once I got back, I built another marionette for another piece. And that was also uh, written by Philip's friend, Derek. And so together we kind of made the little, another little performance. And then we had the, yeah, the, the show. And it was, that was really the stepping stone into puppetry and Philip Miller, of course, working for Creature Technology at the time. And so he told me, you know, there's this audition for a new show coming up. It's King Kong the Musical. You know, it sounds pretty crazy that there's a musical about King Kong, but... Yeah, and there were auditions, and then I had two weeks of sort of workshop, interview, and just kind of being... I had to go into the workshops at, at Creature Tech, and they had a, a dinosaur set up from Walking With Dinosaurs. That's kind of put me on the rig there, and you know, I had to see that I could understand what it was like to puppeteer, you know, remotely from the puppet. And obviously, they could see that I had just come back from the conference, and I had this determination so it was really the right place at the right time I had the right attitude and you know they gave me a shot and they yeah they employed me as the swing for King Kong's 
face and so the swing all around because at that time we didn't know exactly the configuration of what we were doing because we really just built this show from the ground up I was probably one of the last people employed on the show I think I'm, I maybe was the last person employed for the show at the time so there had been a lot of a lot of work done before I got them at least five five years five seven years pre-production stuff that was happening and design and everything at that time but I was just really brought in the last minute and then I've just been on this journey ever since. I mean, your ducks were lined up in a row right there, weren't they? It was really like, bam, <laughs> straight from Ronnie Burkett to the conference, to New York, to mm-hmm. Henson Workshop, to back home, finding that person. And wherever I seem to go in Melbourne, especially, Philip Miller is always there in some respect to every person's career. I have to ask you now more about King Kong as a puppet because we we sat down and we watched elements of the show that we could see last night and it is the most complex puppet I've seen. I mean, we're talking about a marionette that is at the scale that we've never seen before who then is able to be climbed with a rig on his back. He has facial controls. He has shoulder and head controls. I need someone to explain to my listeners just what we're talking about in terms of the scale but also the level of differences that this puppet has are you able to kind of give what you would say would be your explanation of, of how this puppet works? Yeah, well, without being too technical, because I don't know anything about the actual technical aspects of it, but I do know how he comes to life. So, you know, we've got this, the biggest marionette that you could ever, or the most technological marionette that you'd ever seen. You know, he's, he's, on, he's on like an XY axis, like up in the gantry. So he's being ferried around the stage like from up above on these very strong cables obviously because he's a 1.2 ton puppet cute nothing too heavy yeah yeah (laughs) yeah six six meters 1.2 tons and so just being ferried around the stage but there are 10 people that we call the king's company was the king's men in melbourne because it was all men but then when we went to broadway we had three chicks that were just awesome and so, yeah, 10, 10 King's Company on stage, lifting limbs, so lifting his his hands and his feet and crawling up his back, jumping off his back with counterweighted ropes, so pulling up the arms to get that the dynamic of his arm coming up very quickly. They have to jump off his shoulder with a, a counterweighted rope that's connected to his hand. And, you know, they were doing all the physical stuff on stage. And then there's three of us that we call voodoo puppeteers because we're up the back in the mezzanine in a soundproof booth. And there is uh, Jacob, who is our puppetry captain, who's talking to everyone on stage through in-ear mics. He's calling the moves. And so he's you know, saying something like, right hand, go. And so then they'll move the right hand. It's all very tightly choreographed, but they still need like, that that timing. And Jacob is just the master of, of that. Hmm. Um, so he was our puppetry captain. So he's also doing the shoulders and wrists and clenching of the fingers and also the whole creature up and down. He has some control of the actual cables that are connected. he's connected to that he can actually make it move up and down at certain points, uh, the whole creature. And then next to him there's John, who is doing the voice of Kong and also does the head and neck movements. And so he's roaring into a microphone live, and then that's modulated through the system in the theatre. There's about a, an eighth of a second delay from him roaring for it to come into the auditorium. And so within that eighth of a second I've I'm reacting to what he's doing with all the facial expressions opening the jaw with uh, a foot pedal and yeah so there's 16 uh, servos just in his face that's what's made him super expressive and that's like a real standout in the show is just how expressive and lifelike 
Kong is, and the 13 of us bringing him to life, we all have to be in sync for him to become alive. And if we're not, he just, you know, you, you notice it. And the whole point is to make it like you're not seeing the puppeteers, but you're believing that this 1.2 ton, 6 metre creature is actually there on stage and becoming alive. My job was to control yeah, the facial expressions and that side of the emotional part of Kong. The voodoo's are sort of the emotions of Kong and that's, yeah, that's what our job was. There's a beautiful moment in the show where the puppeteers who are operating on stage with him show a moment of vulnerability by actually appearing out behind him. It's like the puppet's soul and I'm always very interested in the puppet's soul and the puppeteer is the spirit of the puppet. Sort of a bit of a through line of my show and... I want to know those choices to allow King Kong to be seen as vulnerable. How did you, as a company, because the, the show was built in Melbourne and you were part of that collaborative effort to make the show what it was the first time around. Where did the choreography come into that with puppeteers being able to be seen visibly at little moments throughout the show? Well, we weren't trying to hide the puppeteers, but they were really an essence of Kong. And just in a, I think there are a couple of moments in the show where the puppeteers are actually featured and we want you to see the puppeteers. And there was just this very, very silent moment between Andaro, the character Andaro and Kong, where they're really connecting. And the fact that the puppeteers kind of come out, the call it the meerkat moment, because it looked like little meerkats that pop out. <laughs> and Jacob will even say, uh, uh, good night, meerkats. And that's when they go back in. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's just real a real connection between the actress on stage and the whole essence of Kong. So there are a few of those little moments where a little light shining on the puppeteers. And, yeah, it's kind of a, a cute little moment, I think. And it was I think it was important to see because they are also the soul of Kong. It's just that everything's coming out, and that's, I think, kind of feels like Kong is embracing her at that at that time. So it's like all of Kong is seeing her, and she's sort of feeling all of that as well. As a marionette maker, the way that we convey emotions with marionettes is through the body language. There's very little you can do with the, the static face. So for you coming from marionettes into Kong, and you're now becoming a, a sort of a studier, a Jane Goodall of puppet robotics... How do you understand every little inflection of the eyebrow, the eyes blinking, the twitch in the faces that they were available to you? What did you have to do in terms of study of these facial features or did it just come as reflexives? It really did become muscle memory after a while. So I was, because I was from there from the beginning of actually creating the movement of what, what Kong can do, of not, not what he can do, that all the puppetry and the mechanism, everything was already there. But as far as allocating things in my fingers so what what made sense to me like thinking about where things should be so I've, i changed a few things like blinks and sniffs so i i took away like the there was a few push button things so there was a push button sniff and a push button blink so i didn't want any of that i wanted to be able to control that blink all the way down all the way up again that was always there, but I just didn't want to push button. I never wanted to have to see a robotic blink or a robotic sniff. I wanted control of the whole nose, so all the way up and all the way down and how, much, how long I hold it for. And just when he's blinking his eyes, sometimes if he's going to sleep, the eye blink will be you know, slower and more controlled. And so just little things like that. And just where they made sense to me in my hands, what made more sense. Yeah, I guess what I was more comfortable with in the end. So that was a great luxury that I did have. I had a little bit of a say in how that works and different scenes, we needed to do different things. So I needed to be doing a few things at the same time. And sometimes it was just uncomfortable. It didn't make any sense to me. So we just kind of swap it around. Because yeah, I was also in control of 
the hips left and right and also the chest in and out so almost like a breathing so there were certain rocking things in the rig that had to be done as well so it was yeah from the very beginning like we really need to sort all this out like who was in charge of what and who was in control of what part of Kong and what made sense really so you'd, you'd even think that the voice of Kong you would think that they would be in control of the mouth but it just ended up not being that way. Everyone would ask, like, why Why would you be in control of the math if you're not the voice of Kong? But it just worked. We just made it work. And that's just what made sense in the end. And, yeah, the jobs were just allocated accordingly. Hmm. Describe for us what... I mean, it's hard to do it without visuals, but the rig itself is sort of attached to your forearms. Is that what I'm getting from this? So... The rig that I was in control of, it is quite heavy duty and it's kind of standing next to me and I've got, my forearm is through a loop, um, so I've got control of it and the other one is just sort of sitting there, but I've got control of two joysticks, the joysticks have toggles on top of them, there's buttons that I need to button on and so there's there's really, there are a lot of things happening just in the fingers and obviously, obviously constantly blinking, there's a few things that have to be happening all the time. Is the rig heavy? Is it something that you physically pick up or are you like locked into it? No, so it's actually locked into the ground. So they're all freestanding. All three rigs are just freestanding rigs and we stand beside them and we yeah, control all the rig from there. Right. And then you've got the puppeteers who are on stage. So you've got these big hefty dudes who are lifting the fists of the puppet up above their heads. And those fists are like, what, 30 kilos? Uh, the whole arm, I think... Is about 90 kilos, but we had they are counterweighted with an elbow cable and also one to the hand, but they're physically lifting it, but also the second puppeteer on the arm is pulling on the rope to counterweight the elbow being lifted as well. So it's kind of like two people lifting that 90 kilos, so it's still very heavy. So then to have nuance with that, like to have gesture and, and subtlety and, you know, slight turns with it, I just find that unbelievable. And then the other side of it, like you just mentioned, is the counterweighting. So you, you're jumping off the puppet in order to lift an arm and it creates this kind of freneticism around the puppet as well. So how much of the scaffolding and, and, and the rig did you have a hand in when it was in Melbourne? Did you, like, did you get to experiment with that side of it as well or is that someone else's job completely? I did not experiment. No, I had nothing to do with any of the physical stuff. I was, I was purely a voodoo puppeteer, so it was just really just the emotions of Kong. All, all of this, there was, a, there was a lot of rehearsal that was done before we opened up in Melbourne. There was a lot of work to be done with the movement of Kong and we had Gavin Robbins and Leanne Weiser, so they were sort of our movement coaches for, um, for King Kong himself. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot was done before we opened up. So there was a lot of work, but yeah, the voodoo puppeteers, we didn't have much say in the physical movement of him on stage. So you were the only person apart from Jacob who also puppeteered with you, who came on the show from Australia into the Broadway season. How much of the show changed? All of it, like a lot of it changed. So a lot of Kong's movements were the same as we had in Melbourne, just because we kind of had that down. We had sort of certain movements that he could do and sequences that we knew that he could do. A lot of the scenes were with Kong and Anne were very similar. The rest of the show, the choreography, the songs, the scripts, the, the book, everything was completely overhauled. You mm. know? And we had Eddie Perfect that came in and wrote most of the music for it, the new songs that were so great. And he also had Beetlejuice at the time as well. So he was 
he had two Broadway shows he was working on at once. So he was a very busy man. Crazy. And then I love, you know, there's something about this cast as well. We watched it last night together, a little bits of it, and it seemed like it was really diverse and, you know, there was uh, the lack, I mean, from, from the difference in the movie that we saw with Jack Black, mm-hmm. there is none of that romantic element to it. How much of that was a conscious choice for the lead? Yeah, so that was one of the main changes from the Melbourne to the Broadway season was, so the romantic lead was totally cut out and it was all about, we had an African-American girl playing Anne Darrow in Broadway. That was one of the big, one of the big changes was it was more about the empowerment of her journey and her relationship with Kong. So it wasn't, she didn't need that man at the end of it to save her or anything like that. So it was all about her empowerment. And that was a lot of what this Broadway version was about. And if you look at the ensemble on cast, it's just a spectrum of all the colours, and not just colours, but also sizes and shapes of the people. Everyone was really employed and cast for what they brought, what they could bring to this new version of the show. And because the show is about an other, so Kong is an other, so it's like an outsider. And so it was really giving power to all those others out there. And yeah, and it was just, everything just worked and it was it became... Because there was so there was such a diversity on stage, that's what that what really became the glue of the the show, and something that was so accessible to anybody that they would be able to see themselves on stage. So all up, how many shows did we do in Kong? Well, I do have some numbers because I do remember uh, we had two hundred ninety one shows in Melbourne, and then three hundred twenty two on Broadway as well as twenty nine previews. So all up around six hundred fifty, so shows all up. So it's. Um, yeah, you know, it's it is a beast of a show with you know a beast in it, but it was um a big show, um, massive overheads. You know, <laughs> difficult to put something like that onto the stage. There were only four theaters on Broadway that were big enough to actually hold Kong himself. And there was only one in Australia, and that was the Regent Theatre. So that's where we you know, we started. It's a big show. What did you learn about the business of Broadway? from your time over there. I mean, as an Australian, I imagine that, I mean, I know that the the theatre scene is just so different. How was it being among, you know, the pinnacle of what we believe show business to be? And what did you learn about show business from that? I feel like a lot of the time I was just kind of along for the ride. I was in a very (laughs) fortunate position where I was taken from Australia because I had a very specified job and, you know, known as an alien with extraordinary ability because I was the only person that could, that knew my job and it was a lot easier for them to bring me over than to train somebody up, which would have put another couple of months or at least, at least another month onto trying to train somebody to get the nuances that, that we had already made in Melbourne. So Jacob and myself were brought over from Australia because we had, we knew that a lot of the emotional side of Kong and the animatronics uh, we had we had that in our muscle memories already, and yeah, Jacob, also this consummate professional that just knew Kong and knew how to be be our puppetry captain. Going into this a Broadway show where I knew how to do my job already, so I didn't, I didn't have those nerves. I didn't think, oh, am I going to be able to do this? I, I had done it before, so I was extremely fortunate to be in the position I was. And so looking at Broadway as a business, it is very different. There are a lot of different regulations and things over there. So there is more than one puppet in our show. So the, another puppet is the Cobra, mm. where we have a Cobra scene where there are six puppeteers, but he is, it's also counterweighted so that the Cobra can 
rear up and it can be in different positions in the stage and it can attack Kong's arm and all these sorts of things. So in Melbourne, we had that counterweighted by riggers that would climb up and down ladders on the sides to get that different level so the Cobra could you know, attack or you know, withdraw, all those sorts of things. But on Broadway, they weren't allowed to do that. And we started off with people doing that during rehearsals, but there are certain laws that say that we can't have those people running up and down ladders um, because it's just a little bit too out there. Mm. And so just, just little things like that, you notice things that you can't really get away with on Broadway, but they also have these regulations because things have happened in the past with different productions where people have been hurt. And so there are definitely definite guidelines that need to be adhered to. The business of Broadway, it's it's such a big business and there's so much going on that I wouldn't have even known about. But there's just so many people involved and there's a whole lot of people that are looking out for you. And there's also, so there are actors' unions and things like that that we, we're very, we're a lot more simple here in Australia. We have, we have those sorts of things here, but it's just not to the scale of seriousness that it is on Broadway, but it has to be because that's kind of the, that's the pinnacle of musical theatre and stage art, I guess. That, that's where people strive to get to. And then for Danny Miller, and I think for any Australian artist, Broadway is somewhat unfathomable for a lot of us. So when that opportunity came for you and when you got it, was it what we dreamed of, you know, what is it, was it what you thought Broadway would be? Yeah, look, I didn't really have any preconceived idea about what Broadway would be, I think. I, I knew, I had seen Broadway shows and I knew of just how how big it is and just how, well, for me, it was always just like an, an, an unattainable thing, really, because I'm an Australian and I studied musical theatre at, you know, at Ballarat, so at BAPRO, as it was named back then. But I didn't finish that course, and I just, I knew half, halfway through it, I, I, if I wasn't in the top five people in 20 people in my class, you know, you always hear about there's 10% of actors that are in work. And I think it's 2%. Well, yeah, even then, I think we were being told 10% back then. Yeah. I say, I, it's not in my personality, I'm not somebody that likes the cutthroat world, I don't really like competing with other people, and I'm more of a, I'm a collaborator, I like to collaborate with people, and I like being a part of a team, and I think the industry of acting just always seemed to me like it was competitive, and it just wasn't in my personality, so I, I, I didn't finish the course, I thought, yeah, I'll, I like amateur musicals, Like I'll do them, and then... Yeah, I kind of got the back door into Broadway just through puppetry and just through being, through having this amazing opportunity sort of almost fall into my lap. I mean, of course, I did the work and I had the right, the right attitude and I was very serious about it and I'm very reliable in that sense. But it, I really did just find a back door into the Broadway scene and I was very fortunate and it was a blast. I've been fixating on Kong, but... There is so much more that you do in the industry and that you have done. Before we go to break, what are some of the favourite shows or projects that you've done to date? Of course, Kong was a huge, a huge highlight in my career and was the beginning and pretty much the last thing I did too. So it's been the, the first and the last at this point. But yeah, so with Global Creatures, I also, I did the Walking with Dinosaurs tour across North America so we did 27 cities across North America and Canada. And then also we did Auckland, New Zealand, and then we did an Australian tour um, for another eight weeks, I think it was, at the end of that. So that 
touring across America was definitely a highlight, just seeing all these different cities that we were in. So we had at least two days off per week that we could explore the cities and just really get a sense of uh, different like, cities in America and just mm. like, being able to be in these hotels and being paid to do this awesome job. Like Walking with Dinosaurs is a beautiful show, was a beautiful show that's only just just ended after I think it was 12 years that it was touring around. God, that's amazing. Yeah, and just to be a part of that legacy was um, pretty special. Again, I was doing the voodoo puppeteering parts of that. So that was a huge highlight. Met a whole lot of great people. My friend Frankie Cordero, who is one of the new characters, Rudy on Sesame Street. Sesame Street, yeah. Yeah, so he was, he's actually become a great friend from that. And, you know, I went to his wedding in Chicago a couple of years ago and we've, we've maintained this friendship. And, you know, even I took over his apartment, his lease in New York, so that was where I was living while I was on Kong. It's just... Just having that, even being able to have that network has been phenomenal. But that all started with dinosaurs. Just these, the relationships I've had with some of these people was because I toured with them on, you know, across North America, which which was just a wonderful experience. And more recently, being able to build and perform puppeteers for Judy and Punch, which was a, you know, a feature film done by Screen Australia. That was an amazing process, and I got to, of course, work very closely with my very good friend, Jess Knight, who is over in Portland at the moment. We've had a great relationship through, ever since meeting each other, through Philip Miller, again. There he is. Yeah, there he is. That glue. (laughs) So, yeah, again, it's, and that's, that brought us even closer together, just having this, this project that we, you know, built these marionette puppets with Jess Davies as well. Um, she came in and helped us as well. And then, yeah, performing, yeah, these marionettes for a, a feature film was, yeah, that was that was really a blast too. So it's um, lots of little experiences and each each one brings something new. It brings along new skills. It brings along, you meet new people, you form new relationships and, yeah, just that, that community get smaller and smaller as you go along because you, you really you meet all these people you know how they work you know you feel it feels like you're in the right place once you once you're in this industry for a while you know that you're meant to be here and that you know you don't have that imposter syndrome as much because I really got I really got lucky and I was really fortunate from the very beginning so I had a really great opportunity and I had this thing that like, I really need to I need to prove myself because I'm I got here and I was very lucky to be here, but also I need to maintain, I need to make sure that this isn't just like a flash in the pan. It's not just this once off because I really like the industry and I'm very serious about it. So you really need to, it's not just something that I want to just go away. Like I want to keep working in the industry. I want to keep making, I want to keep collaborating. Eventually I'd like to make my own show. I've got a few ideas, but it's, you know, it's, I'm really quite happy being a part of a team and collaborating and working on new stuff. I know I went further into the question, but it's um, it hasn't just been one highlight. It's been it's been a bunch of highlights. I mean, it sounds like the community of puppetry is as strong in the US as it is here, and and you've managed to be able to reach across both of them now and be part of a global community, which is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So you are listening to Talking Sock. 
with One Orange Sock and Danny Miller. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions. More with Danny in just a moment. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace, and you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one orange sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett, and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Danny Miller. We've been talking about large-scale puppetry and specifically Danny's work with King Kong, both in Melbourne and on Broadway. But now, Danny, here we are in your workshop. Talk me through how you've developed and run your business as a commercial puppet builder and how that's evolved. It's really been... I have a very simple sort of way of, you know, I have an Instagram account and I've only just really put up a website for myself, but a lot of my work just comes through word of mouth. People will know what I do. A lot of my projects are, that I do myself are very small projects or there's projects for primary schools or high schools, so I'll, I'll make some puppets for a production that they're doing. But other than that, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the building that I do are collaborative builds either with uh, Jess Knight with the Puppet Smithery, Joe Blank, and I've worked on a few productions with him. Also, Sanctum Theatre, we built these oversized insects for the museum. Bug Lab, a, an exhibition a few years ago, and the Magic Lantern was, Gonzalo was one of my the first people that I, he had a little puppet shop on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, and that was a very, a curiosity shop, but he had puppets in there, and so we had a great relationship at the very beginning, even before I went to the conference. It was a shop that I loved to go into because he's, he's from Argentina, and but he's, he's an artist. He and his wife Lucy are, are artists, and they just had some beautiful pieces in that shop and so I was very attracted to it and yeah we, we had a friendship and so I think one of my first gigs that I did was actually with Gonzalo just at a, a party it was a party and we ended up just performing these little marionettes in this little window box that was just for a party that was was like almost like an Elsa Wonderland party with all these suites in different rooms all different rooms had different themes and we were just in this little little box window and that was um that was very fun so that's it's a lot of collaborative builds is what i mm. what i that's what i enjoy most as well because it's it's you're building something as a team and there's an end you can celebrate the end product as a team it's not just you sending this one puppet out in the post that you might not see again um, you know it's it's nice and you've jumped from building marionettes into, I mean, I can see behind you that you're doing a build for Redline Productions in Sydney. You've got some Muppets happening there. You're 
recently I saw that you'd done some stuff during COVID isolation with a puppeteer called Jemima Eva, who we both know and love. And yeah, so what has, you know, what have you adapted in terms of building puppets and what have you sort of become more comfortable in in terms of building? I really do like marionettes and I am very, I am drawn to marionettes because they are a very difficult style of puppetry because you don't have your hands directly on the puppet so they're a lot more difficult to perform with I think and to control and to manipulate because it's very specific in the way that you weight marionettes and what, where their weight is where their center of gravity is and how heavy their feet and hands might be that you can lift them and the strings need to be in precise positions for them to make certain movements um, so I like Puppet building is definitely problem solving as well. It's not just building a puppet. You are solving problems as far as mechanisms go, as far as, yeah, again, the weight distribution, things like that, especially with marionettes. So I like a good challenge. And so even with marionettes, even the joints of marionettes need to be, you know, your knees can't bend backwards or um, you know, a shoulder can't go like too far up or, you know, a neck doesn't twist around a certain amount so you need to really make these points where it be with the build or where the strings are placed so I'd, yeah I do I do gravitate towards marionettes but I also like working in all different kinds of puppetry and it's that I'm still very very much exploring the world of the Muppet style puppets but I'm enjoying the process so mm. it's again it's always upskilling so I'm always enjoying learning new skills and yeah I guess just maturing as a puppet builder as I go along. And and that's that's what you get with networking as well. You With each collaboration you do with new puppeteers, you find different ways of doing things and then you sort of settle into your own rhythm as to what you would prefer to do, whether it be something you've done before or you you know, you, you take something that somebody else does on a build and you go, oh, I like, I like the way they did that more than I would usually do it. Or I like the materials they use. I've just found a different material that I can use on you know, future puppets. So it's a lot of building puppets is sourcing new materials as well. And I love upcycling materials. I love trying to find materials that I can just use instead of going out just to Spotlight or Bunnings and just buying new materials. I like to try and repurpose materials into new puppets. And then it also gives the puppet a bit of history I, I mean, I can say, as I was speaking about before, like the Coke bottle that uh, I fashioned balsa wood around, like I'm the only person that knows that inside this puppet is a Coke bottle and it has this character and I don't, no one else knows it's there, but I know that I put that in there and it's, it's almost like a secret. And so I might build a puppet out of a piece of wood that I have found on the beach or something like that, but I'm the only person that knows that that piece of wood is has that history to it so it's kind of nice that it can kind of become a part of the puppet and it, that piece of wood has a new life that it otherwise wouldn't have had it may have just ended up you know in landfill so it's kind of nice to to have that it's like the puppet it has become generally when you've built a new puppet that's where the story begins with that puppet but you've created a story of that puppet through how you've built it yeah which is really lovely so it kind of has an origin point with a bit of momentum behind it yeah and sometimes that. sometimes that's even enough for me even if if i'm building a puppet and there's no real purpose for, it's not for a certain like production or a performance or anything if i'm just building a marionette because i wanted to 
even just that process of finding the pieces and you know ha having its own history like that's enough of a journey for that puppet like to, and to just display it if it's just for display purposes i know that it's you know come from different places or you know with different parts of its body from things i've picked up outside or something like that Today, you and I are going to set about making a marionette and I'm going to learn from you how to make a marionette. I'm very excited because I have only really done Muppet-style puppets in terms of my building knowledge. What are the basic materials? What are the basics of creating and starting out in marionettes that you've developed and learned from your time at the O'Neill and, and from building from different puppeteers like Philip Huber and Ronnie Burkett and... I mean, you've showed me your controls and they're completely different. So there's obviously a level of individuality that goes into every marionette style. So can you give us a bit more about how we're going to get started today? Yeah, well, that's that's it. So there's, I have, I've taken a lot of pointers from all the different areas, but that initial uh, marionette manipulation course that I did with Philip Huber, we also had Jim Rose who was in the room with us. So there's a Jim oh. Rose... Um, construction, marionette construction course, and that was running at the same time with Philip Huber's manipulations. So I built one marionette, so Eugene, that is hanging right next to us, I built him because you are, you bring your own marionette to the conference, and then the whole point of Philip Huber's manipulation strand was to restring it. Uh, we use his paddle style control that he introduces to us, and so we make one of those. We restring the marionette to so it makes it into a more performance-based uh, marionette. So what I had to do to Eugene, my puppet, was we had to give him totally new legs because the ones I had made were fine, but they also, they didn't quite move in the way that I wanted them to. And so we used some of Philip Huber's methods for jointing, and that's to this day I use the same method of jointing the knees and elbows and things like that. What do you do? So it's it's really it's just using wood. So it's these these are wooden pieces that you do together, very precise drilled holes into the the knees and at certain places, and then they're actually rope joints. So you use rope to join these two pieces of wood together at a certain joint, and so and you are limiting the movement by how how much you sort of shave down the wood. But yeah, it's just it's all about angles, and it's all about stopping the knees from going past a certain point. It's very geometrical I think yeah, in the way they come together. Why is he called Eugene? Because of the Eugene O'Neill puppetry So you built conference. him specifically? Yeah I built yeah. him specifically so he was my first I guess um, performance marionette that you know was ready for performance the other ones were just ones that I just played around with beforehand but mm. he was the first one with an intent for him to be able to perform and then I came back and yeah made Harold another puppet for the puppet palaver. Puppet Palava. So talk to us about that. Okay, so that was that was really my introduction to the Melbourne puppetry scene because I didn't know anybody, not one person that did puppetry in Melbourne before I went to the O'Neill. And so when I came back, got in touch with Philip Miller, and then I met, it was my first, as I said, my first introduction. There were about, I think, six or seven Melbourne puppeteers and performers that I was introduced to and we just did this cabaret performance for Puppet Palava. It's also where I met Joe Blank as well. Joe Blank had one of his or two of his puppets I think like an, um, an old man that he had and yeah it was just a whole lot of fun and that was my introduction to just 
the collaboration sort of feel of the Melbourne puppetry scene because we work together to to make things. As I said, I, um, Derek wrote a song for me for the marionette that I had made, a little ditty that you know Harold sang on stage, and yeah, it was just really great to just touch base and just get in get into the puppetry scene. It was it was the best introduction that I could have asked for. Because you're also doing working on another little puppet cabaret uh, that you're putting on potentially in November when we come out of this crazy isolation. Also, yes, good to note, we are able to reach across the table and touch each other because <laughs> what? This is my first live episode in about five episodes. It feels wonderful. So so tell us about what you're kind of planning to do emerging out of isolation. Yeah, so we have a, a bit of a puppet cabaret called Puppet Jam. I haven't been a part of so it all started while I was over in New York and I've kind of taken the place of Jess Knight who is now in Portland and so all of her duties that she had done or that they had done before so the Puppet Jam is again a collaborative sort of cabaret feel style puppet show with Melbourne puppeteers so there's just just little scenes that have been put together yeah I, I was lucky enough to see one of them when I came back and it's just a really it's it's fun it's just it's what puppetry really should be it's explorative it's playful and so, so much just nonsense and things that don't need to make sense but they're just as pieces short pieces they're just so lovely to see mm. and it really amplifies the playfulness of puppets and just experimenting and that's what we're doing at the moment we're just experimenting with what we can do for this next installation of the puppet jam so yeah it will, it'll be happening soon you know as soon as we can and it'll be a part of yeah whichever festival that we can you know slot it into um but it's just nice having a play around with puppeteers and seeing what we can come up with jess knight says that puppetry is a re-emerging art form uh do you agree? And where do you see Australian puppetry going? Yeah, look, I think puppetry will always be around. Um, it may not be always in the spotlight, but it's uh, it is an art form that will never it will never die. I see a lot of a resurgence in puppetry in the last you know good ten years or so. But it's through technology as well. As far as when technology goes further, like new forms of puppetry have come along. Obviously, like King Kong, animatronics, the ability to put something that huge on stage and with Walking with Dinosaurs, like these are technological... Masterpieces. Yeah. 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 And you know, the fact that there are aspects of what they use in animatronics in like King Kong and dinosaurs that they actually use at NASA, like there's actually, yeah... NASA style quality things that they use in these animatronics. I don't know the specifics of it, but I know that they, they, they use Damn. certain parts of the, the puppets, the technology within these puppets are that complicated. And so for you, you mentioned that you've got a couple of shows in mind of things that you'd like to create. What kind of shows or stories are you interested in telling? I, I like, I like the very, I like stories that focus on say the, the innocence of childhood or just the magic or the wonderment in things that you know you might not always think about every day but very bringing things back to basics so I do have a story that I wrote when I was at uni for a course but it was with the idea of possibly writing a children's book with it but now I think about it more I think maybe 
that might actually make an, a nice either shadow puppetry show or just a yeah a simple puppet show but you know just about about childhood and seeing things from perspective of a child that we may not really think about but you know it's trying to get into the psyche of the way a, a child thinks just things like that just very innocent and not necessarily dialogue based but image based i do like to tell stories through yeah, imagery and sounds, uh, things that have a, a nice soundtrack or a soundscape. I'm going to try and uh, strip back to the stark basics of puppetry as well. But yeah, so something I'd like to explore. Again, I don't have anything solid, but I have ideas that I would like to one day implement. How do you think you'll go about developing an idea for a show? Are you, again, doing it through collaborative efforts with Puppet Jam or are you, you know, how would you start a new story or a new show? Because this is where I get stumped. I have all these amazing characters and all I want to do is give them stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somehow I'm getting jammed about that and I think accessing and writing stories for me is probably my biggest challenge. And so I'm really, really keen to see or understand how you approach that. Yeah, well, I think I'm probably in the the same area as you because I haven't actually you know, written and performed. I haven't actually put a production out there of my own that's solely my own yet. So I think um, I think I need to get out of the mind frame of being too precious about it and being too judgmental because I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes... If I'm going to put something out there, I want it to be exactly what I want it to be, but I think I need to take a step back from that and just start actually creating and start failing and you know being okay with failure and being okay with making mistakes but just to actually get it out there and then have people see it and then you know you can take other people's input i think i have to realize that it's not going to be perfect from the beginning and there's there's all there's always stages even you know king kong it wasn't perfect from the beginning it has to go through it has to be seen by people it has to be seen through different eyes it has to be played with, it has to be workshopped, and has to just have other people's input into it. So I just need to not be so precious in having to have total control over it and have to, everything has to be perfect. So I think, yeah, what it needs to come out in a rough way first, and I think that's what I need to... That's probably the next step for me, is just putting something out there and just you know letting other people see it and give me their their critique it's hard hey because it's so incredibly vulnerable to put something out there and have it critiqued and i'm Mm. such a perfectionist in a lot of ways and in other ways i'm hopeless and not a perfectionist at all but the idea of putting something that's rough is incredibly intimidating you know but i think you're right the idea of actually putting something that is ready for the scrap pile if it needs to be but ready to go somewhere if it can and i think that's yeah really interesting so danny I can see that you've got a piece of paper in front of you that is covered in names. And so here's your question. And I'm settle in for this one, folks. If there was someone you could thank for your journey in puppetry, your puppet hero, someone that you could thank, who would it be? I think just from the very beginning, uh, from the very, the seed of me growing into somebody that's had these opportunities. Ronnie Burkett was the the first kind of, the, the show that, I, that Billy Twinkle, seeing Billy Twinkle and seeing him perform on stage, a one this one man in control of these many, many puppets. 40? Like, 80? I don't know. Too many. Yeah, I think there was 40-something in that, just in that production alone. 
but just voicing them all and just the quality of his puppets and just knowing that someone could do this. Obviously, he doesn't do it on his own, but, you know, that's that's all you see is this one person on stage with these beautiful marionettes and just think, well, this is, this is something that I... I don't think I could ever actually, you know, obtain that level, no matter how old I got to live. But just seeing that he could do that, like he was just an inspiration from the very beginning. Mm. And the fact that he was so generous from the get-go, and I thought, you know, this this is really special. I knew that I had the interactions with him for a reason. I thought that was just a big... That was the first step for me. Mm. And then, of course, coming back from the conference and meeting Philip Miller. So Philip Miller, Ronnie Burkett, Jacob Williams, who I have worked so much with over the years, obviously with Kong, but he has always just been a mentor of mine and been a a friend as well, just a great friend to have around. And, you know, just as a mentor, just in life as well, like he's... He's got such a lovely family. He's got two kids and a dog and you know, his wife um, and his partner, Sarah. So, you know, just having that little community and knowing that he's just done so much in the world of puppetry, just in his career, just to be able to see that and model that on myself as well and know that you can kind of make that a career and also have a family. And he he brought his family to New York with him. They, they, they were with him and they went to school in Brooklyn for you know, the time that we were there. It's just, um, yeah, I think those three men and also Jess Knight is someone that I will always work with. You know, for the rest of my career, I will work with her because she she's just a, a ball of enthusiasm, of energy, and she just, she knows... She's just on top of it. She she knows what it's all about, and she's someone that can be. She's so reliable, and but also, just, a great human to be around too. So, yeah, those those four people will be probably my standouts. But there are tens, you know, twenty or thirty other people, you know, that, are out there. But also Frankie Cordero as well. He, he's someone that I'm so lucky to have a friendship with and he's at the top of his game and you know working for sesame street but such a lovely guy and again has a family maria and you just had um had a a young girl last year before last and so they've a cute little family but again just uh, too many people (laughs) having done broadway that's kind of every actor or puppeteer's pinnacle or dancer or anything like that. It's it's the pinnacle of what we want to do with our careers. So having already accomplished that, what's next for you? Um, look... And you can, it can be a big dream. It can be a big dream. Yeah. I mean, I would love to work more in movies. Like having, to, having done Judy and Punch, it was just a really small, a small window into that industry and it's something that I would love to do whether it be performing or whether it be building or you know just even being you know like a props girl or anything like that just on the movie set like I love the idea of that but yeah as you said like Broadway is like it's the top like you don't get any better than Broadway you just get different so I'm just happy with just continuing to to facilitate like up-and-coming puppeteers just making sure that 
like puppetry is still around, you know, and just yeah, I'm as I said, I'm I'm the happiest I'm at is when I'm collaborating with some with people and in a team. So as long as I'm I keep being a part of teams that are doing you know, great things or even just silly things, like it's just all I need to be doing is yeah, I think I will just continue being happy just being a part of the industry and in whatever capacity it is. Danny, how do I get to Broadway? How do you get to Broadway? Well, it's at least two plane trips. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, how do you feel about being known as the alien voodoo? <laughs> <laughs> alien with extraordinary ability. Well, that's happened to me twice now, so I like it. It's, it's kind of cool. Well, Danny, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Danny on Instagram at Danny's Workshop and at heartstrings.me on the internet. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy. Thank you, Pete. It's been lovely to talk with you and we'll see you a lot more of you around. I bloody hope so. And we'll talk sock again soon. See you later. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSockProductions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock. 